Ma Coco? Aye. For Maui, it's a new beginning. With honor and deep respect, we're moving forward. We're ready to get people back to work. We all have to do our part, and we'll make this happen. Working together. We're ready. Ready to work. All ready. 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 We are ready. For more information, visit makokomoe.com. with the other side of paradise. The first book is now out about the largest public corruption scandal in state history. It's called The Mailbox Conspiracy. It's written by the man who uncovered the Keoloha's crimes, retired federal public defender Alexander Silver. This case, because of who was involved and what it showed and where it led, is politically significant and it went far beyond just getting someone found not guilty. The book gives an in-depth look at the original case, before the Kealohas were arrested, before suspicion was thrown their way. It starts right after Gerard Puana, Catherine Kealoha's uncle, was arrested for stealing the Kealoha's mailbox. He was heading to trial. Silvert, who was tasked with defending him, explains how he was able to piece together the frame-up by the police chief and deputy prosecutor. Why did you decide to write this book? Why did you find feel the need to put it all on paper? There were two reasons for writing the book. The first was that I really wanted the public to understand that Gerard Puana was not only not guilty, but I wanted to clear his name because some people believe that he got off on a technicality when there was a mistrial. And the public really knows about what happened with the Kailoa case because everybody was following it and reading it in the newspaper. But there wasn't a lot of press leading up to the Pawana trial. Uh, there was press when Louis committed the mistrial, but the public really doesn't understand how we investigated Gerard's case and, and what led up to that mistrial, which really was that he was framed. And I wanted to make it clear that he should be exonerated for what happened to him. The second reason I wrote the book was because there's been a lot of pushback by the establishment uh, that this is really just the act of a few bad apples. They've been convicted, they've been sent to jail, and we can move on with things. But, you know, and we had a small opportunity for change that occurred when the Kalos were convicted and some baby steps were taken, but it didn't go far enough. And since that time, we've seen what happened with Chief Ballard, who resigned, who became more and more reclusive and less transparent as uh, questions were asked of her administration. We've seen what's happened in Maui with the Maui uh, police chief and the CIU unit there intimidating their own officers. We've seen what's been happening with the police shootings and the refusal of HPD to be really open about what happened. I really wanted to use the book as a vehicle to explain to the public and show the public that this was systemic corruption and to give a blueprint to the public for the next time we have this opportunity for change, which I think will be coming up. You mentioned the whole bad apples and you know, we talk about that all the time, right? There are, there are really good police officers out there. There are a few bad apples who often will ruin the bunch, but this is not that. I mean, we're talking about the big 
chief. We're talking about the one in charge of more than 2,000 officers. So you, you can't really call him and lump him in with these bad apples, right? If the top is rotten, everything below it gets damaged. Do you think that that ruined the reputation for all of the Honolulu Police Department? Well, I, I think what's happened is it was not only Louis Kealoha and Catherine Kealoha, but it was a large segment of the CIU unit. It was uh, the custodian of records who had to reply to our subpoenas, who was forced to provide misinformation. But also, don't forget, we had several city and county oversight committees, the Ethics Committee, the Police Commission, and the Office of Disciplinary Counsel, who, in my opinion, all failed in their public oversight duties. So this is really a situation where everything failed to prevent the framing of an innocent man that was done not only by the chief of police, but by people who worked under him. So all of the systems in place that were supposed to prevent something like this failed. That's not a few bad apples. That's systemic failure. And it needs to be addressed. I know we took some steps to address it, but not enough. And there's been major pushback. And the next time we have this opportunity, the, we have to really move forward. You know, I, I think I'm pretty familiar with this case. I've been following it for quite some time. Um, but there were some things in the book that were uh, surprises. And one of them was I had known that you briefed the FBI about the evidence that you had. I didn't realize the hostility that you encountered. You, you told me there was some of that. But when I read about it, you seemed even in the book taken aback at how that went at the very beginning. Is this something people need to realize is that a, a public defender doesn't necessarily get along with the FBI or the prosecutors and taking a case like this was a big leap of faith to go to them with it. Absolutely. You know, as a public defender, we butt heads with U.S. attorneys and agents from all sorts of ABC alphabet law enforcement agencies all the time. You know, not only in the courtroom where we're challenging their credibility and actually attacking them that they've done an unconstitutional search or seizure, but, you know, in the hallway when we run into them. And there's a lot of animosity and distrust. You know, I hope it's professional and you earn their uh, animosity, so to speak. But there's, it's not a great relationship between the FPD office and most of these law enforcement agencies. So it was somewhat difficult uh, to ensure that we were going to get the U.S. Attorney's Office to even agree and believe the evidence we had uh, gathered. Uh, and I did use the press kind of as the hammer saying, if you don't do what I want you to do, we're going to expose our evidence to the press and to the public. And then you're going to have to answer to the public why you haven't taken corrective measure. We did the same thing with the FBI. You know, the FBI likes to think of itself as an independent agency. They don't think they work for the U.S. Attorney's Office, even though they're their investigators. And so they hold themselves out to be different and unique and special. And our relationship when we met with the FBI agents to show them the evidence, it was not a good relationship. And it certainly showed during the meeting, which in the beginning was very tense. As we showed them the evidence uh, and all of it and how obvious it was, I think they came around to our side. But I was still, still suspicious of them 
And I didn't want, you know, as I describe in the book, the evidence to be buried in some warehouse like the Indiana Jones movie. So again, I was using the threat of going public as a way to push the FBI along. So you knew nothing about the special prosecutor appointed by the U.S. Attorney General until you made contact with this person, correct? That's correct. At the end of my meeting, original meeting with the FBI, which was in January or February of 2015, um, I had given them a timeline that I wanted to know where the investigation was going uh, three months after, later. And they were like somewhat aghast that I would dare give them a timeline. But I was, again, afraid that we were going to lose control and the FBI was going to bury it and there would be nothing we could do. So after three or four months and not hearing anything from the FBI, I called them and they tried to ignore me. But we finally got a hold of one of the agents and I was adamant that they better tell me what was going on or I was going to go to the press. And the next thing I knew, I got a call from someone named Mr. Weed, and that was the first time I knew of his existence. And he explained to me that things were being taken seriously and they were in a full-fledged investigation. And then I uh, looked him up because I still didn't trust anybody. So we looked up Mr. Wheat's background and we also called lawyers from California who knew him just to find out who he was. Because, you know, a lot of times lawyers come from the mainland to Hawaii and it's kind of like a mid-career hiatus where they're just coming for the trips. And we wanted to make sure that this guy was serious. And of course, I found out that he had uh, prosecuted one of the largest public corruption cases in San Diego history against the mayor and several city councilmen. And that, you know, pedigree was exactly what I was looking for in a prosecutor. When I heard Michael Wheat's name as well, before I started standing outside that grand jury, I looked him up and, and yes, that's the number one thing that comes up is stripper gate, right? Is right. what they called it because they were, they were going to these strip bars that were donating to campaigns and doing favors and, and all of that. And it, it, it was, um, quite an eye-opening, fascinating story as well. So would you say that you were happy with how things went with Michael Wheat? Absolutely. I, I give Mr. Wheat and his team a lot of credit. Uh, they had the resources and the subpoena power and the grand jury tools that we didn't have um, to for, you know, further the investigation along and really uncover the conspiracy that Mr. Pawana was framed. You know, remember, all I had to do was get a jury to find him not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, which means, you know, sowing reasonable doubt that the government couldn't prove he was guilty. I mean, we wanted to go further and prove he was exonerated, but that's not what I had to do in court. But that's what Mr. Weed and his team did. They uncovered the evidence uh, and took it further than we could and really went to work. And I give them a lot of credit for what they did. Uh, I'm proud of what they did. And I think it really showed in the trial of the KLOs how thorough they were. But at some point, was that getting to you that it was taking so long? I mean, we're talking years, you know, of a grand jury and years of, of all of this evidence collecting. You must have been getting frustrated at some point. Oh, absolutely. You know, when we handed over the evidence to the FBI in February of 2015, you know, I basically took the position, you know, take our evidence, which we had spent a year and a half developing. And so we had a lot of evidence we handed over. 
And I thought, you know, they could just take our evidence, throw some suspects in a room like, you know, Gibbs on NCIS and question them and grill them and, and get the case moving. You know, it took two more years to get an indictment. It took another two more years to go to trial and another year to get sentencing. So it was very frustrating in how long it took to get this done. But, you know, it was a precarious situation when we represented Gerard. Everything had to fall into place correctly to get where we are today. And, you know, I, it's, I was frustrated, but where I look at where we are today, I can't complain. One part that actually made me chuckle um, was was your interaction with him um, ahead of your testifying at the Kaloha trial. You know, when when he told you, "Don't be a lawyer." You know, what does that really mean? Because we all have our opinions about lawyers in the public. But what do you think he, as a lawyer, was telling you as a lawyer? So I had to testify at the Kaloha trial, and um, I've had lawyers as witnesses on the stand before and we tend to come across i'm going to be polite here pompous and a little arrogant and we think we're smarter than the questioner sometimes and we don't answer the question we answer the uh, question we want to answer and it doesn't really come across well when you're supposed to be a witness and so mr wheat basically told me in one sentence don't be that person and uh, and so I, I really understood what he meant just by saying that. And if I didn't understand, my wife backed it up by telling me exactly what Mr. Wheat meant. And so I tried when I was a witness to be a regular person and not be an arrogant lawyer on the witness stand. And I hope it came across that way to the jury. So you're saying lawyers recognize what we non-lawyers think sometimes about lawyers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know if all lawyers recognize it because I've sat down with lawyer witnesses and told them not to do, do uh, you know, what they lawyers sometimes do, and then they get on the stand and do it anyway. And, you know, you're cringing there as they're, you know, destroying their credibility as a witness and making themselves not to be very likable. Uh, so some lawyers get it, some lawyers don't. But I knew very specifically when Mr. Wheat told me, don't be a lawyer on the witness stand, what he meant. And I'm sure he, he knew that I understood that. What do you think is the highlight of the book or the part that people who aren't that um, intently knowledgeable about the case, what is it that you think they're going to, I guess, be the most interested in? Well, if, if we're looking at one particular fact, chapter 11 of the book, which is called Rue the Day, details why Catherine would actually frame Gerard and her attempts to silence and discredit Florence Puana, his mother. Uh, and in that chapter, I detail these letters that Catherine Kailoa penned herself to the Puana family, which really show her anger and her intent. And I know those letters haven't been published in full, but I think when you read those letters and the way they were written, you can really come to understand the two sides of Catherine Kailoa, because there are two sides. There's the side that a lot of people knew in the law, very nice, very polite, very soft-spoken. And then there's the side that we've learned about 
you know, through the criminal charges and the trial. And the, the letters that are depicted in uh, chapter 11, I think, really give you a flavor for who she really was. You've been doing this for 33 years, right? 33 when you retired? That's correct. 33 years. Why, why did you write a book about this one? Why not any of the others? You must have had some pretty fascinating cases over the years. Well, you know, this one had a great story to tell, great cast of characters. I mean, we have Catherine Kailoa, mysterious Allison Lee Wong, the fireman boyfriend. We have our investigation, which was shocking in what we uncovered. You know, we have the, the troubled relationship between the U.S. attorneys and the FBI and us. I mean, there were so many great tidbits in this case of, of things that really weren't known to the public that I could share that um, I really thought it would make a great story. And it did. It was seven years of my life that I in, was involved in this case. Um, so there was a lot to tell. But as I said, you know, I really wanted to exonerate Gerard and I wanted to create a blueprint for the public for change. Uh, because that's what matters, is that this doesn't happen again. So would you say this is the one case that when you look back on your career, that you didn't just exonerate a client or you didn't just fight hard for a client, you you wanted even more? Is that why this is the one case that you look back on your career as the highlight? Absolutely. Um, you know, as a public defender, you know, I represent people and Maybe I get a few not guilties and that's the end of the story. Um, you know, a lot of the cases are just drug cases or bank robberies or scams, you know, nothing really politically significant. But this case, um, because of who was involved and what it showed and where it led, is politically significant. And it went far beyond just getting someone found not guilty. The Mailbox Conspiracy is now available on Amazon, Kindle, and in some bookstores. The timing of the read is very interesting, as more indictments connected to this case have come down, with more arrests tied to Louis Kale Loha. That's part of my next episode of The Other Side of Paradise. For now, mahalo for listening. I'm Lynn Kawano. <laughs>